Amen. Thank you, Sandy. Well, we've been working our way through a selection of the minor prophets in our morning services. We come this week to the book of Malachi. Malachi. And we'll read together from chapter 1, verse 1. I've said, I think, every week since we started in the Minor Prophets, there is never any shame in turning to your table of contents at the start of your Bible. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, then if you turn to page 960, you'll find the book of Malachi. This is easily one of the most challenging uh, books of Scripture. So I want to give you a heads up, prepare to be challenged. If you're not prepared to be challenged, you're not prepared to be changed. So prepare to be challenged this morning as we begin our journey through the book of Malachi. We read together from chapter 1 and verse 1. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect due to me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible when you bring blind animals for sacrifice. Is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now implore God to be gracious to us, with such offerings from your hands will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple door so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table it is defiled and of its food it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden! 
and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable meal in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. And now this admonition is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, and if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not set your heart to honor me. And then down at verse 7 of chapter 2, for the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with your sorry, you have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. Amen. Well, we have, as I said a few moments ago, been on a journey through some of the minor prophets together, minor in size only, minor in size, but major in stature, major in significance. And we started our journey by looking at Jonah as the one minor prophet that all of us, I think, have a, a fairly decent working knowledge of. We spent two weeks in the book of Jonah. Then we turned to Obadiah, and as we read Obadiah, we were reminded of some of the reasons why some of us struggle with the minor prophets, why some of us are a bit uneasy with what we read when we read these books. Firstly, we had to remind ourselves of the history of Israel and the context into which Obadiah spoke. So it takes a wee bit of work, maybe a wee bit of reading, a wee bit of research to work out who he's speaking to and what he's addressing. And secondly, we may find ourselves uncomfortable with the way that God speaks through these prophets. We said that the way that God speaks to the Edomites in the book of Obadiah is like the way that we would expect a boxer to speak to his opponent before they step into the ring together. I will bring you down, says the Lord, to the Edomites. And if the picture that you have of God in your head is less than the God that we meet in the pages of Scripture, if you have a picture of God as a kind of grandfatherly figure, soft, all-affirming, all-embracing, then you will struggle when you open up some of these prophetic writings and listen to the way that God speaks to His enemies. But God loves His children. 
And he was right to be angered by the behavior of the Edomites. Remember, the Edomites were related to the Israelites. And yet when Babylon, Babylon came and attacked Jerusalem, they helped them, they supported them, they encouraged them. When the, the gates of Jerusalem fell and the Babylonians went in and burned and destroyed and killed and captured, the Edomites were up in the hills celebrating and rejoicing. They captured some of the runaways and gave them back. They killed some of the others. These are God's people related to the Edomites. And God was furious with the way that they had behaved. So Babylon conquers Judah and Jerusalem with the approval and the assistance of Edom. Many of God's people are taken captive. They are taken as servants or as slaves back to Babylon. They live there for, for a long time, for decades. They put down roots. They, they you know, begin to work their way up in society. They start as slaves, but many of them end up quite well-to-do, quite comfortable in Babylon. Many of them, of course, would have been born in Babylon. And then the empire of Babylon itself is conquered by the Medes and the Persians. This empire that once had looked so strong, so powerful, so invincible falls. And God works in the heart of King Cyrus. Not king of God's people, but the king of Persia. The sovereign God works in his heart and he issues a decree allowing the Jews to return home if they so wish. It's a dangerous journey, a long journey, a difficult journey. They don't know what awaits them when they get home. Remember, Jerusalem is, is rubble, it's ruins. Other people may have moved in. Some stay in Babylon. But 50,000 people choose to leave Babylon behind and to travel back to Judah, to travel back to Jerusalem and to rebuild. Everything starts very well. They, they find Jerusalem. They find where the temple of Solomon used to stand. They build an altar. They sacrifice. They are frightened. They are fearful of those who are encamped around them but even in their fear, they still decide to build an altar and to worship the Lord their God day and night, every day, together. So it starts well. They then build the foundations of the new temple, and you have this amazing scene where the young men who have never seen the old temple, Solomon's temple, are rejoicing in what God is doing. They are celebrating, they are singing songs, they are filled with joy, cheering, shouting, celebrating. But mingled in with that joy and that celebration, there is weeping and there is sorrow because the older men who can remember Solomon's temple before it was destroyed by the Babylonians. You can remember the size of that temple and the grandeur of that temple. They remember how much they have lost and they see the foundations for this second temple, this new temple, and it looks so small in comparison. So you have 
the young ones who are encouraged, good to go, excited, enthusiastic, celebrating, and you have the old ones who are discouraged, weeping at the sight of this uh, new temple foundation which has been laid before them. And before long, as the enemies around Jerusalem begin to get wind of the fact that, that God's people are building this temple, they, they, they redouble their efforts to discourage God's people. And it's not just now the old men who are discouraged, but the young men are discouraged as well. And the work on the temple stops. It stops for 16 years. They build their own houses. They make their houses. They mend their houses. They tend to their uh, houses. But the, the house of God remains unbuilt for 16 years. And so God raises up another prophet. He raises up uh, Haggai. That's what we considered last week. Haggai speaks to these people who are making excuses. We will build the temple. We will get round to it, but the time is not right. And comes Haggai to say, the time has been right for 16 years. The Lord has had enough of your excuses. Consider your ways. Rearrange your priorities and rebuild the temple of your God. And the Lord in return promises his presence. Indeed, he promises that the glory of the new house, though the foundations might look small, maybe it won't be as uh, grand as the temple of Solomon, the Lord promises that the glory of the new house will be greater than the glory of the old house. And that's what matters when it comes to the temple, isn't it? It's the presence of God. It's not how big it is, how ornate, how fancy. It's the presence of God in that place. The Lord promises His presence. He promises His glory will be experienced in this new temple. And there's a period of blessing. The, 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 the people of the Lord respond to Haggai and to Zechariah as well. And they rebuild the temple, and uh, they, they, they worship the Lord in that temple, and it all seems well. But by the time we come to Malachi, things have changed. The second temple has been rebuilt. The wall around Jerusalem is standing strong. The city looks good. All of the externals are in place, but the lives of the Lord's people are disordered and ungodly. It's a familiar pattern. There was a period of blessing and obedience. Then life becomes comfortable. And as life becomes comfortable, complacency begins to creep in and people begin to drift away from the Lord. Isn't that a familiar story for many of us that when we're facing hardship or trials or troubles in life. We recognize our need of God. We recognize our own weakness, our own insufficiency. And we call out in, in humility and in desperation to God to help us. And sometimes in these moments, in these times of suffering and hardship, we experience the Lord's presence in a wonderful way a very real, tangible, powerful way. Sometimes these are the times, these are the places, as hard as they are, that we feel closest to God. And then God answers our prayers, and life becomes more comfortable, 
and we become more proud. We act as though we don't actually need God anymore, and we begin to drift away from Him. That was what had happened here. Life had become comfortable. Carelessness and compromise had crept in, and God had to raise up Malachi to correct his people. Malachi means my messenger. So we are going to turn our attention to the message that God gave through his messenger to his people. Now, if the way that the Lord spoke in Obadiah to uh, his people was like a boxer, you know, trash talk to, to his opponent before he stepped into the ring. Malachi is like a, a, a domestic dispute between a husband and a wife. Malachi basically is, consists of six disputes between God and his people. And we're going to look at the first two of those disputes together this morning. So firstly, hopefully this will appear up there somewhere, first point, uh, denying God's love. That's chapter 1, verses 2 to 5. Chapter 1, verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? What a great thing to be told by God, I have loved you. Those of us who are married, maybe you remember your first few encounters with your spouse, with your husband, or with your wife. Do you remember the first time you looked at one another? Do you remember the nerves, the sense of excitement, the hopes, the dreams? You think, oh, I think she, I, th I think her look lingered in my direction there. I think she noticed me. I think he saw me. Then maybe you remember the first time that you spoke to one another. I think, you know, he spoke to me and he used my name. He knows my name. Well, God says to his people, not only have I noticed you, not only do I know your name, I have loved you. What a thing for God himself to say. Did you notice how many times in Malachi God is referred to as God Almighty, the Lord Almighty? This is Almighty God who says to his people, not only have I noticed you, not only do I know your name, I have loved you. What a thing for God Almighty to say. What can be greater than that? And what can be worse than the response of God's people? How have you loved us? I don't think they are, they are doubting God's love so much as denying God's love. That seems to be their attitude throughout the book of Malachi. Here they are in their paneled houses back home in Judah, the wall around Jerusalem rebuilt, the temple rebuilt, the Lord present in that place. And they say to God, how have you loved us? We can be so blind to the blessings of God, can't we? It takes just a few years to learn to count, but it takes a lifetime, it would seem, to learn to count our blessings. Count your blessings, name them one by one, Count your blessings, see what God hath done. I know you'll like that because I took that from the Baptist hymnal. So 
There you go. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God has done. All around them, evidence of the love of the Lord. And they say, how have you loved us? Well, above all else, he had loved them by choosing them. Verse 2, was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says, yet I have loved Jacob. They've chosen, they've been chosen by God to be his people. The natural choice for God would be to choose the elder brother. That is the, the brother that normally gets the blessings. Esau would have been the, the more obvious choice, but God chose them out of not only these two brothers, but out of all the people groups in the world, God chose them to be His people. Romans chapter 9, verse 10, Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by Him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Are you a Christian? If you're a Christian, why are you a Christian? Is it because you are wiser than those who are not Christians? Is it because you are more morally uh, upstanding than those who are not believers? Well, not according to Scripture, it's not. It's not because we are in some way better than those without God and without hope. No, it's because, in the words of the Apostle Paul, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, before we had done anything good or bad, before we had been born, before Adam had been born, before the world had been born, he chose to love us, to set us apart as His own, and so we ought to be secure in His love. If it was about us, then we would be insecure, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. If it was about us, we would be insecure, but it's not about us, it's about God. The unchanging nature of the God of love and grace and mercy. He will not wake up, to, not that he needs to sleep, of course, but he will not wake up tomorrow and change his mind when it comes to the love that he has for you and for me. He will not wake up tomorrow and decide that he doesn't love us anymore. We are deeply and dearly loved, and nothing can lift us out of his loving hand. He says to the Israelites, those Edomites wanted to destroy you, but I would not let it happen. He chose His people, He defends His people from all that would seek to separate us from His love. Think of Psalm 23, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The rod is what the shepherd would use to attack anything that attacked his sheep. So if a wolf came, he would use the rod to, to kill the wolf. David was comforted that anything that came to attack him as a child of God, God would deal with that. Nothing would separate him from the loving grip of God. But also David was encouraged by the staff. Because David knew that sometimes he could be his own worst enemy. 
Sometimes we can be our own worst enemies. We need God and His love to use His staff, as it were, to bring us back to where we ought to be. I wonder if it frightens you when you see the church neglected or marginalized or persecuted. Well, we need not fear. Because look at what the Lord says of those who would come against His people. They may build, verse 4, but I will demolish. We are secure in His love because our salvation rests on God's unchanging nature and not on our resolve. And we should be secure in bearing witness to the Lord Jesus Christ as well. Jesus said, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. You have not chosen me, I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. So no matter how clumsy your efforts may be to share the good news of Jesus with those whom you know, even if you feel very insecure, you think, I don't have all the answers to the questions I might be asked. Maybe you'll stutter and stammer your way through. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. Do as well as you can do. You know, be as winsome as you can be. Be as wise as you can be. Learn. But ultimately, know that it's not up to the fine oratory that you use. It's not up to the cleverness of your words. Ultimately, if God has chosen them to be His own, they will come. They will come. It's not about us. It's about Him. I wonder if you believe there are some out there in Airdrie, out there in our streets, whom God has chosen. And if and when, well, not if, when we go and when we share the gospel with them, they will be ready to receive it and to come to Him. So that's the first dispute. I have loved you. How have you loved us? What evidence is there that God has loved you? Your family, your friends, your job, the freedoms that you enjoy, the food that you enjoy, the measure of health and strength that you have, all blessings from God's good and gracious hand, but supremely, God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We see the love that God has for us in Jesus. So even if your life does seem a bit of a mess just now, look to Jesus and be assured He has loved you and He will love you, and you are secure in that love. Look to Jesus, recognize His love, receive His love, and rejoice in His love. So, point one, dispute one, denying God's love. Point two, only a two-point uh, talk today. Point two, dishonoring God's name. That's the second dispute. Malachi chapter 1 verse 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect due to me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name, but you ask, 
Who have we shown contempt for your name? Who is it that the Lord singles out for showing contempt for his name? The priests of all people. Not just his children, but the people appointed as priests. The Lord knows who he is. He does not have an identity crisis. He knows who he is. God knows that he is God. He knows that he is worthy of worship. He loves us with a perfect and unending love. He loves us, but he does not worship us. He knows who he is. He knows that he is worthy of the worship of the world. He knows the greatness of his name. His name uh, is a shorthand way of saying all that he is, all that God is, and all that God is is perfect. All that God is demands worship and wonder and awe and respect and reverence. Yet his own people, his own priests dishonor his name. They offer to God imperfect sacrifices, defiled offerings. They are supposed to bring God the first and the best. Instead, they bring the last and the worst. The best animals are kept at home and the dregs are brought to God. What of you? What of me, what do we bring to our God? Do we bring our best or do we bring our leftovers? Verse 8 of chapter 1, when you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. It's like, you know, the, the stuff that you throw in the charity bag. If you see one of those wee white bags come through the letterbox, you say, yes. Not because you, you care for the, the charity, but because you've got a load of junk and you just want rid of it. And you know, if you put it in that white bag and stick it out first thing Tuesday morning, someone will take it away for you. That's what they were doing. What, what will we do with that animal? It's not fit for anything. Just... Just take it to the temple then. We've got no need for it. Just give it to God. Defiled offerings. And defiled priests, lastly. The priests were defiled. They saw fit to accept these offerings. Their hearts were not set to honor the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 2. They showed partiality, so they treated some people in one way and treated other people in another way. They showed partiality, and as for their teaching, verse 7 of chapter 2, the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned away, you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. They are to stand as priests as a bridge between the people and God. Well, some bridge. They're not leading people to the Lord, neither by their example nor by their teaching. They are leading people astray. And you can have a degree in theology. Uh, you can be accepted by a denominational selection committee. 
You can be invited by a church to pastor that church. You can stick Rev at the start of your name and on your business cards. You can stick a collar, indeed, around your neck. You can have all these things. You can do all these things, and yet you can still lead people away from the Lord by your words and by your example. Of course, that's a sobering thought for those of us in pastoral ministry. But as Baptists, we have always emphasized the priesthood of all believers. We're not the only ones who believe in the priesthood of all believers, but it's always been very, very important to us to affirm that every believer, as we will think about soon, every believer is able to enter into that most holy place through Christ Jesus. Every believer has the same access to God. So, I get to stand here with a microphone on a Sunday morning, but I do not have uh, more intimate access to the presence of God than any other believer. And so, with that blessing comes responsibility. We are all responsible to lead people closer to God with the words that we use and with the example of our lives. So, how is that going? How is that going? Is your example and are your words leading people closer to the Lord, closer to Christ, or are they causing people to stumble as they look for the peace and for the joy that only Jesus can bring? So, there are the first two disputes of Malachi. How have you loved us? They deny the love of the Lord and they dishonor the name of the Lord. And we ought, in response, to ask ourselves, as we think about those defiled sacrifices, those dregs that were given to God, it's right for us to ask, how am I doing? What am I giving to God? I'm not saying that just because we're getting a new heating system and we're, we're going to have to raise money for it. It's not just about money. It's about ourselves. Are we giving ourselves? fully, wholeheartedly to God, all that we are, all that we have. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Malachi forces us to face that question, what are we giving to God? But no matter how much better we may be doing than the priests of Malachi's day, of course, we fall far short. At the end of Malachi, there is a 400-year silence, 400 years of waiting for the promise given to Malachi through Malachi to be fulfilled. That silence was broken by the one that Malachi predicted would come. Malachi 3, verse 1, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Well, that messenger came. And when he came, this is what he said as he looked to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here is the perfect sacrifice, the lamb without blemish, who willingly laid down his life in love for us. 
God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, and he is the perfect priest. His words lead to life. He opens the door to the fullness of God's presence for all who will simply come in humility and in faith and trust and follow Him. As we look to Jesus, as we see the perfect sacrifice, the perfect priest, and the perfect proof that God has loved us. May we learn to love and to follow and to bring others to Jesus and through Jesus to God our Father. Let's bow our heads and humble our hearts in the Lord's presence as we pray together.